0: Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hello and welcome back to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. I'm your host, Etienne. Today I have the pleasure of interviewing Bruce Maynard from New South Wales in Australia. They have successfully integrated shrubs and trees to their livestock and row crop operation. This increases his production and resilience through increasing the ecological function of the farm. It is fascinating to understand how he has designed and implemented such systems at scale with a very holistic and pragmatic approach. I came out of this interview inspired for my own farm and I hope so will you. Enjoy! Hi Bruce and welcome to the podcast. Hello Etienne and thank you for having me. Could you start by giving us uh, a bit on your background and the story of your farm?
1: I am a fourth generation farmer from central New South Wales in Australia. So uh, approximately five and a half hours drive west of Sydney in the inland. Uh, Where I live is a very flat uh, topography and uh, and has traditionally been a mixed uh, livestock and cropping zone. Nowadays, it's mostly gone towards broad acre cereal cropping and uh, it's mostly rain-fed farming where where I live and uh, I have uh, uh, a wife and uh, three children and uh, we intend to keep farming for some time yet.
0: What does your farm look like in terms of productions?
1: We have uh, uh, livestock and cropping uh, combined here and also we do a little bit of uh, carbon farming as well. Uh, that is our current operation. Uh, in the past, we have had irrigation on the uh, on the property for summer uh, crops. So uh, in Australia, our uh, main cereal growing is uh, uh, is strangely uh, for the rest of the compared to the rest of the world grows in the winter time because our winter times have a lesser evaporation than our hot, very hot summers that we have here. So uh, uh, we. Um, uh, have deliberately changed our operation to uh, make our farm uh, very much more complex and multi-layered. So uh, today when we're talking about some of our work with shrubs and trees, it's in relation to what we have tried to do is reinstate as much landscape function as we, we co- could so that it supports our business and we have less need for outside inputs in the long run.
0: Maybe a good way to picture it is, what did the farm look like when you took over, um, I imagine a good few years ago, and what does it look like now, in terms of landscape even? Indeed, it uh, now has changed from being very cleared and open to
1: now more complex, with uh, broken up with lots of trees and shrubs across the landscape. So, uh, approximately 35-year career so far, I have had here. And uh, we have, uh, during that time, uh, planted over three hundred and twenty thousand shrubs and over two hundred thousand trees. In amongst also reinstating nat- the native and naturalised grasslands. So we've we've uh, gone to a very much a polyculture uh, setup here. Uh, there is nothing monocultural from where it was uh, before. And uh, my forebears. Uh, uh, did a lot of clearing and uh, and clearing out of trees and and so forth and uh, now we have re- reversed some of that
0: yeah to get a sense of, of the scale could you tell us uh what acreage is dedicated to broad acre crops and uh, you know how many animals you have
1: yes indeed so we have um, uh, approximately 1600 hectares here uh, that's just under 4,000 acres and uh, uh, regularly uh, we would have here on the, the property uh, about two and a half thousand sheep and um, 750 growing cattle and as well as uh, having approximately uh, 800 to 1,000 hectares of uh, crop And uh, one thing I should point out with uh, one of the systems we developed here with our no-kill cropping, which is different than no-till, is that we can retain the grasslands and grow crops in them. So they are a simultaneous use across the landscape. So when we're talking about grazing and cropping, they're actually combined throughout the year on those areas across the whole property.
0: And uh, do you feed part of the the grain you produce to animals or is that a completely different uh, market and use? Mostly our grain is uh, sold off-farm for uh, human consumption
1: and uh, that will be increasing uh, into the future as well in terms of value because the local provenance uh, factors of the grain we produce now are going to be more market valued because it's being grown in very complex circumstances in a fully restored grassland rather than simplified monocultures. And uh, so the market is starting to wake up to the uh, possible uh, extra nutritional benefits of those uh, uh, factors in the end
0: products. So to get a bit of sense of of your workflow through the landscape, um, how does it work? You then crop into pasture and you have a rotation to the different plots, or do you still have areas that are wholly dedicated to um, animal uh, grazing and then other areas that are uh, dedicated to row crops? Right, the uh, only places uh, just
1: dedicated to uh, animals are where uh, complete clearing was not done across the the landscape or the landform is unsuitable for machinery. But um, uh, the majority of the property is actually uh, um, interlaced with uh, cropping and grazing at all times. So it's a grassland that may contain now 100 or more species uh, fluctuating in composition and mass. And into that, we actually sow our crops and harvest in amongst them. So this system of no kill cropping is quite substantially different from uh, all other cropping methods in that it, it actually uses more complexity to grow crops rather than simplification to grow a maximum amount of of crop. So this grassland layer supports the uh, the shrub and tree layers, but also likewise the symbiosis of those spread throughout our property uh, enhances the amount of uh plant growth that our animals can utilise through the year, but then also our, um, our crop growth. And I should quickly add that, that um, we're in quite a temperate area here. So our winters are not cold. We do not receive uh, any snow of any significance and might only have approximately 10 or so frost events per winter time. So it's a um, moderate in its winters. Very, very hot and dry in the, uh, the summers, but our rainfall is non-seasonal, so it's spread at any time throughout the year, but are very, very variable. So um, we have long periods of, uh, of high evaporation and low rainfall in this area.
0: And what kind of soil uh, do you have? Is it quite rich or is it quite marginal land? It's um, on a, a
1: worldwide scale. It's, a, it's a, a fairly marginal, not high nutrient. Uh, from an Australian perspective, it's, uh, uh, it's quite reasonable. And uh, it's alluvial-based uh, soils that have been deposited by river systems over the last few million years. Um, but it is a factor of Australian soils that... Um, They're uh, mostly very ancient. Our geology here has not changed terribly much for a a very long time, uh, virtually no glacial activity over the eons and also a very long time since volcanoes or major changes on the continent itself. So um, uh, generally speaking, we have a a very low nutrient uh, uh, situation.
0: I know I'm supposed to interview you on agroforestry, but I can't resist to go back uh, to this uh, pasture cropping because I think it's fascinating. Maybe you could just explain in a few words uh, how you actually manage to find this balance because the first thing that comes to mind for me, because I'm ignorant, is how you manage to set back uh, the pasture that's very well established. How do you manage to set it back enough to then be able to establish crops uh, without you know, them suffering from excessive competition? It's
1: a really great question
0: and in, indeed the,
1: the term you use there, um, pasture cropping, is another cropping method that was developed uh, by an Australian uh, uh, about a couple of hours drive away from where uh, I live and indeed that, the point of your question about uh, trying to subdue other Plant growth to grow a crop is actually a feature of pasture cropping, but it isn't a feature of no-kill cropping. So the um, uh, a quick uh, brush over of the uh, the principles with no-kill is uh, the two of the main ones that that uh, will give you an idea is that we actually only ever sow and seed the crop um, when the um, uh, the topsoil is dry. And the other uh, part of it is we don't use soil disturbing machinery. So it's straight running coulter disks that are used to uh, cut a very, very small one centimetre maximum and half a centimetre, uh, uh, one centimetre deep, half a centimetre wide maximum slots in the ground where the seed is deposited. And then the seed that we're we're placing there sits until uh, moisture and Uh, temperature conditions uh, germinated. So by doing it this uh, way, we actually travel across the soil when the soil is is at its greatest strength. So compaction issues and uh, other simplification things that just naturally happen with most other cropping systems don't come into play here. So its very essence of no kill is to try and encourage and establish and n- not take away uh, all the diversity that we have there uh, in place. So it's a very, very non-interventionist uh, system and its grain yields are uh, quite a deal, less than a conventional system sitting right beside it. But the profitability is, is, um, uh, is well uh, up there because um, the costs are so low and you are never taking away, if you like, the, the basic fundamentals which are supplying nutrient cycles there because you're not disturbing anything. You're just adding on the top. So uh, the analogy is that we keep the cake there. We keep on just adding a little bit of cream on top of the cake consistently.
0: Actually, Bruce, I wanted you to give us a bit of uh, oversight of the different projects you work on because, you know, you recommended the Enrich booklets when we first talked on the phone, which are a great resource. And I get the impression that you're involved in many different projects, and it would be great to get an overview of that. Yes, and uh, and it's been a a really enjoyable uh, journey I have uh, uh, had in
1: natural resource uh, management. So yes, it it covers the full mix of uh, uh, plant, animal, and in fact, human interactions uh, in a practical way. So my role uh, nowadays is to uh, go and help people more and extend this this knowledge in a practical way uh, fashion, because uh, no techniques are, uh, are valid or useful for individuals unless you can personally see how that can be applied in a fashion that, when one is talking about agriculture, is uh, practical and possible and economic at that at that time. And uh, so, there are a lot of factors that that uh, feed into that, and. Uh, My uh, uh, work is very enjoyable that I go across and intertwine animal and human behaviour in amongst our effects of, uh, of the vegetation that we manage, whether it be in agricultural areas or whether it be in arid pastoral areas. We are still all managing it in various ways. So what we're trying to do is, as much as possible simplify businesses but complicate the biology and the ecosystems rather than uh, accept the, the worldwide pressure on us, which is to complicate businesses but run very simple biologies.
0: I like that. I like that a lot. And I'm really curious to see um, how you've managed to do so because it's a recurring theme for Dimitri uh, and I as we interview people is how do you complexify uh, ecosystems? While still keeping something that's manageable in terms of its complexity to manage, because you know um, that's obviously you know the difficulty, and I, I'm glad you touched upon that uh, right from the start. Maybe to go forward in the conversation, um, you could tell us a bit about the trees and shrubs on your farm and how you started planting them and the story behind that.
1: Yeah, so uh, our major uh, plantings we. Uh, started with shrub plantings rather than trees, which is slightly unusual. But uh, droughts in our uh, climate and situation are uh, are very common. Uh, They are uh, getting worse as uh, the effects of climate change are are playing out. But we started out with thinking about putting in fodder shrubs and uh, one in particular called saltbush atroplex nummularia. And uh, it um, is a useful forage shrub for animals to use. But we always did have a view when we were placing it across our farm that it needed to serve not just the uh, uh, animal forage um, uses, but also act as a windbreak and also a a sunshade as well for once again not only the animals but the other plants that we have between those shrubs so right from the very beginning we um, uh, we started to uh, try and think of our landscape not like a checkerboard of uh, individual pieces spread across it but more like an artist's palette that they would use to mix colors across it because that's a more natural state but also with that very clearly in, in thought in mind that you've mentioned, it needs to be practical, but we can edge towards progress in a practical way too by continuing to try and, uh, as it were, mix the colors together.
0: How did that idea first come about? Uh, was it common thinking at the time uh, in certain circles in Australia, or how did you get to this way of thinking of your landscape and seeing shrubs? Uh, as a tool to, to go forward?
1: Yes, we were, weren't the first to uh, do it in the Australian context, but as we progressed along, we uh, developed things uh, more and on the basis of already existing uh, science and experiences, I would suggest, right around the world for a very long time, hundreds if not thousands of years of uh, variously good layouts of uh, trees and so forth across landscapes uh, with where people see how they, they interact. And, and it's a really, really big point that we uh, made plenty of mistakes along the way that um, one can uh, put in trees or shrubs in a landscape and actually depress the profit or even depress the ecological state of the soil if you don't have eyes for the the multitude of effects and so it isn't just shade, but it's also wind flows across your landscape and uh, and sunshine and water flows. So depending upon your, your situation, our designs got steadily more sophisticated as we went along. But one underlying principle that I, I give to people as a, as a takeaway that if you have the option, whatever your land form is, to place Uh, plants in a curve rather than straight lines then you will get more ecological benefit than just the straight line. There are many many times of course that that straight lines or linear uh, situations are the best fit for an operation and that's perfectly valid and you just go with that but even if you can put a slight curve in it you get a lot more benefit from the edge effect across the whole property in particular when thinking with water flows or wind flows
0: could you develop a bit more about how this curve shape is, is significant and helpful to achieve those benefits
1: in particular if we focus for a moment on wind flows it increases turbulence in a shorter distance and so if we had um uh alley farming uh, layouts, for instance, and we compared uh, straight lines to just slight curves and we're trying to uh, maximise the amount of inter-row space between the two designs, Uh, with straight lines you can end up actually creating wind tunnels when the wind blows along those straight lines, thereby negating a lot of the uh, benefits that you you had, if those same lines just have a bit of a, a curve in them, then the turbulence along the uh, alongside starts to uh, create uh, a more still atmosphere in the interrow, and that's where you're you know you're really aiming and thinking about well these trees or shrubs that I've placed there, how can I get a a, a multiple uh, benefit because wind is of course, not only um, affecting the plants in its uh, uh, evapotranspiration from the leaf surface, but it's actually the physical damage too, the subtle physical damage of wind flows across the um, grasslands and uh, and pastures that uh, that actually um, suppress somewhat uh, the uh, amount of um, growth you can get, depending upon where you live and how much Wind you have in regard to uh, the effects of uh, uh, sunlight during the uh, the day. If we have curves across the landscape, that means that organisms that need to seek shade throughout the day have a broader set of options. Uh, uh, than uh, just linear uh, patterns. So depending upon where we're talking about in the world and and season, so uh, in my part of the world, it gets quite hot in our summertime, so 45 degrees Celsius or more is not an uncommon uh, temperature uh, range. So uh, with uh, curves or uh, if not curves, a larger block plantings, uh, interspersed across the landscape enables some of the organisms that need th- those refuges to be able to get them. So that's the, uh, the implication of shade. And, of course, uh, at times we might have young livestock uh, not uh, uh, able to, um, uh, to accommodate uh, heat waves and that sort of thing. And that's somewhat an implication as we move forward with, with climate change in those parts of the world strongly indicated to get uh, hotter to some uh, some tipping points. Uh, Those um, those little things um, might be important because we're we're after this extra biodiversity to actually serve two functions, not only if you like the broad landscape and environmental functions, but it's actually supporting our business. So that's why we're we're trying to do things that enhance those uh, functions. So therefore, we don't have to go and buy external inputs to perform those functions.
0: If you could maybe walk us through the, um, a bit chronologically your landscape and your plantations the, so that we can get an idea of, you know, where did you start? Where were your priorities? How did you place these trees? And maybe how that evolved with time as, you, um, as your context evolved, but m- maybe also as you learned uh, from some of your, uh, trials, uh, and, and really get this idea of how that looks practically on your farm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. Uh, great question. So, um, uh, the, the biggest principle that we've tried to do over the long t- uh, term is to keep on, uh, creating connections across the landscape for biology, uh, to, uh, keep on moving and supporting, uh, the, the landscape. So, all the, the birds and the bees and the, the, the bugs and everything we can't see, as well as things we can see, uh, are interconnected so that they can uh, better shape the, uh, the open areas. So, in a way, our, our main production is always going to be off the grassland base because we're either growing plants that we uh, are going to consume their seeds or the animals are going to consume plants that we eat the animals. So maximising that is the business imperative and supporting that that grassland means that um, a shrub and a tree layer to a certain proportion across our grasslands uh, actually grows more. So we don't end up if you like, sacrificing any of our, our grasslands uh, by planting trees and shrubs. And that was what we certainly found as we modified um, our proportions and patterns, which are two different questions about how you might place things across the uh, the landscape and very, very important uh, ones that are locally uh um, if you like, answered, because uh, no one proportion is, is correct in different areas and for different uh, circumstances. So with our, uh, our trees, was a slightly different uh, journey than with the, sh- the shrubs. So starting on the, on the tree layers, we still had some remnant areas that were uncleared by um, uh, the first agriculturalists uh, here and so that remaining vegetation we were very keen to let it have longer periods between grazing events so that uh, some trees and shrubs that would just naturally uh, reoccur could have that o- opportunity uh, so we have uh, undertook to uh to provide that by subdividing our our property up into uh, a great number more uh, paddocks so that we could have more portions uh, resting for longer periods so plants, not only the woody plants but also ground-level plants as well, could... first of all, germinate and then survive when they were impacted by grazing animals. So those are connections we just strengthened over time and ended up with approximately 15% of the, uh, the property in, um, in what we termed as regeneration uh, corridors or areas. So they're, they're refuges for, uh, for animals. Uh, But they were still impacted by our livestock from time to time, but not with the same regularity or uh, amount of usage that our regular production paddocks were. With the shrubs, it was a bit of a different... uh, aspect that, as I mentioned, we started from uh, thinking about how can we provide a longer-lived plant to help us through drought times, something that would continue to grow when the grass layer had long ceased growing in the in that uh, particular season, and that was our starting point. But uh, then we soon realised uh, that uh, in a lot of landscapes uh, in Australia, the missing layer in the landscape is actually the shrub layer. Uh, uh, when one looks across uh, uh, broad areas, there is still quite um, uh, a large proportion of, uh, of trees, but the shrubs have been taken out. And so that's a key component for long-term stability of ecosystems. And uh, so as we went along we um, we varied out the uh, uh, the number and type of shrubs that we reintroduced and uh, had an emphasis on ones that were useful as far as livestock grazing, but their bigger use was to uh, provide shelter and maximise the grassland uh, growth and they could do that in a faster and, and more economically uh, effective way than uh, waiting for trees to grow for a long time. Uh, term uh, to uh, provide those same benefits. So uh, it isn't uh, an either or or, uh, uh, proposition there. We would uh, uh, gone along this journey doing both, but trees, especially in our part of the world, take some considerable time, some uh, usually uh, at least um, 20 years or more to be fully effective as Uh, windbreaks as an example, whereas shrubs can attain that within two years. So um, uh, the shrubs served as a stepping stone and also a vital reinstatement of a layer uh, of uh, diversity that uh, has mostly gone in their agricultural areas.
0: And these shrubs, how are they positioned then? Did you um, keep them on the perimeters of certain paddocks? Are they actually integrated within uh, the yes, paddock they're itself? Um, uh,
1: widely spread across the uh, the, uh, the paddocks. That's been our end point. It wasn't where we started, but uh, 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 so they're uh, developed as alley uh, farming uh, concept essentially. So, uh, approximately in in any uh, one paddock, there uh, a little bit less than fifteen percent of the total area is occupied by the. Uh, the shrubs. Uh, when we've, uh, we've kept the statistics on that by adding those shrubs that are edible for the, the stock, we've actually doubled the amount of animals that we could keep on those areas uh, right the year round, even though we have 15% less grass, as it were. Um, that has um, uh, enhanced the um, uh, the total productivity as well as what they are actually eating off the shrubs themselves.
0: Wow, that's amazing! And you know, I really want us to go in, into some detail on these interactions between animals and, and the shrubs. But uh, first, to kind of uh, conclude on this picture of the farm and the patterns that you've put into place. Um, I remember you mentioning, you know, the fact that it was better to get a curve uh, in general and to avoid just straight lines. But of course, you know, if you're moving around the landscape with machinery, that's always a bit of a, a difficulty. So how did you uh, strike this balance between um, not putting everything into straight lines and, and uh, rectangles and, and straight lines, but at the same time being able to do your work yes, in, effectively? In a
1: great, great question. And um, uh, the, uh We have uh, gone with quite a lot of uh, different, sophisticated uh, designs, or or, well, what? uh, Sophisticated not the right word, but more uh, intensive uh, uh, designs. In that we have um, uh, done spirals and uh, concentric squares and concentric triangles and herringbone uh, crossovers and so forth. All of which I I would suggest, in in general, is uh, too intensive. Uh, for most situations, and really not not necessary, just great demonstrations of of, uh, of principle. So, if one does have straight lines, and uh, uh, and that will be the case uh, quite a deal of the time, try and keep those straight line um, situations as short as is reasonably possible in the context. That you have, uh, because it doesn't matter which way they face. Even if they are um, uh, perpendicular to the prevailing winds in an area, there are still going to be times when the wind uh, flows directly in line with those straight lines. So, uh, uh, it uh, uh, beyond that, I think uh, one. Fits it um, uh, for maximum production. What you're uh, uh, you're trying to get is the maximum amount of interrow between plantations of trees and shrubs uh, versus the the amount of investment, which is uh, let's face it, never usually cheap uh, for tree and shrub uh, uh, establishment. So there's a broad economic principle that the wider we can get between. Uh, the um, uh, the shelter rows the better, but then we start to run into some natural uh, principles there that as you go wider, then obviously you have less and less effect from the actual um, uh, uh, vegetated rows, the the woody let's call them the woody plant rows, and then you have less edge effect biologically across the whole landscape, so. There is, there are balances there, but not just one. Um, if you like, criteria for the the balance uh, curves are interesting and good, um, and the the principle being the wider the interrow, the more that um, that you will benefit by having a curve rather than just straight. Um, I do uh, like to encourage people to to think about the um, uh, the base. Uh, principle of that if one is establishing a um, a shelter belt, the sheltered zone uh, behind that belt is approximately 10 times the height of the plants we're establishing. So uh, in the case of our, our shrubs, uh, they were approximately two metres high maximum. And so therefore we had 20 metre inter rows before the next uh, lines of, of shrubs, and uh, and that's a base principle. There is new science out that that shows that if you have multiple rows, that sheltered zone can actually be as high as twenty times the windbreak height. So that gives you more flexibility to think about broadening your um, uh, your interrow area to accommodate uh, practically machinery and so forth. Uh, I always say never design on machinery widths themselves because your machinery now is not the same as uh, your grandmother's or grandfather's ones and uh, we can almost bet it's not going to be the same as our, our, our grandchildren's ones. So uh, try and design to uh, natural principles and science uh, as far as we understand it at the moment and then fit your machinery in. But everything being practical is a good answer too.
0: And I'm wondering, because you have two different things going on, you have uh, cropping, which means thinking about machinery and movements, but you also have grazing, which also makes you think about, you know, movement of animals in the landscape, uh, access to, sh- to shade. Um, and so how did you go about, did you, to a certain extent, specialize some zones where some zones are really thought out through like the grazing lens, or have you always tried to keep uh, your options open by having, you know, uh, possibility to be cropping and the possibility to be grazing. Indeed,
1: we've had a very strong focus to try and do all of those things uh, all of the time. So to have, have that uh, producing at all three main layers, grass, shrub and tree layer, and trying to maximise that, uh, that production uh, level. And so uh, that's been a very heavy focus to, to have that when most of, if you like, our human activities are going to be uh, on the ground level uh, as such, um, but uh, those other levels are, are a reintroduction of proportions of it. So in our part of the, the, the world, that will only ever be a, um, uh, in total of the area. Um, pr- let's call it in that sort of that probably 15 to 25% maximum of the total area, or anything beyond that, and then you're starting to reduce the total production of the grassland layer, uh, and so there is a um, uh, a bit of a point that in in fact uh, you mentioned the enriched group. They did modelling on that with forage shrubs just in general for their uh, for farming practices here, and they came up with an answer that on a uh, a model farm, 10 to 15 percent shrub cover would provide the maximum economic effect below that it might be making uh, much of a whole farm difference above that and you can start to subdue uh, profitability
0: okay so if i if i'm to sum up the mental picture that i have after listening to you um mainly it's uh like an alley cropping setting let's say with some two meter high shrubs and then with some spacings uh around you said 20 meters
1: Yes, so uh, that's right. That's the interrow area between shrub uh, lanes, and then uh, occasional tree patterns across the uh, 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 the landscape, interspersed with with those. So, if we had a completely uh, clear paddock starting again, and if we imagined it for a moment with a, a just a straight linear lines here, there would be um, uh, uh, those sh- uh, a triple row of shrub. Uh, shrubs and then 20 meters open ground triple row of shrubs and every fifth intervention would be trees so we would have trees at approximately 100 meters across the whole landscape uh there and uh and that that pattern across the whole thing
0: great so that's clear and let's go back to the shrub you talked to us about uh saltbush if i'm correct um and yeah what's its value in terms of nutrition for animals and uh, how did you come to select that specific plant?
1: Yes, it's a, uh, it's an interesting one out of the Australian uh, landscape and uh, uh, as the name uh, infers, it's uh, if you taste it, uh, it is uh, very salty. It uh, uh, survives a, a, um, in the Australian environment because it actually exudes salt onto the outside of the leaf. So it can Handle a lot of um, challenging sites, and in the Australian context, I've mentioned before, our soils are are, um, often nutrient poor, but they're often uh, uh, carry quite a load of salinity uh, as well and sodicity because of the ancient accumulated salts. So here is a native plant that has uh, adapted. It is. palatable to the uh, to the livestock not a highly pal- palatable plant as such but that is actually one of the uh, uh, the good parts about it it's not uh, by itself uh, a very effective uh, forage because it has a high ash content in the uh, in the leaves, which means that the, uh, even though it's high in protein, uh, it isn't uh, very available for the, the animals. So they do need to mix it with uh, uh, other um, plant species um, in, in proportion. But uh, uh, one thing that's very noticeable is that it's not only useful in drought times when uh, there is lots and lots of very lush growth then that's when we uh, actively see animals seeking out not only saltbush but other shrubs for the ad- additional compounds that they have. So yes, they uh, they go and access these plants for roughage when they have lots of watery feed that they're consuming otherwise. But uh, they're also consuming these plants uh, for uh, other reasons. The mass of phytochemicals on the uh, that the ana- uh, that the plants. Uh, exude are something that is different. So every animal, just like us, likes variety to uh, to different extents. And so when we provide variety back in the landscape, well, we shouldn't be surprised that the animals actually uh, utilise it. And it's a plant also that, that has a couple of other characteristics that are important principles when one's uh, thinking about putting in plants for, uh, for forage, uh, woody plants, that is. Is that um, uh, it, it? Leafs back down to ground level, so it doesn't uh, just provide a canopy that that is um, uh, that is then knocked down to onto the ground surface, and that is important because if we have have trees or plants that have uh, a canopy that is up and then nothing near ground level, they can actually just provide. A wind venturi type effect, uh, actually increasing wind speed at the ground level, thereby um, encouraging more evaporation and more uh, plant damage. Taking actually doing the reverse of what we want them to uh, to do. So saltbush, um, uh, once it's grazed, uh, produces leaves right from the the base right to the top of the plant. But also it has a reasonable recovery rate because a lot of shrubs that are palatable to animals don't recover in time spans to make them economically useful in a landscape. You would just have to wait too long for them to recover and miss out on all the opportunity of the inter-row. So not every uh, uh, plant that is, um, uh, that is palatable is useful in an agricultural setting.
0: Well, that actually um, brings to a question I had in mind, which is when you're um, rotating animals through the landscape, um, you always have to look at the recovery time of the pasture itself, you know, which uh, is already one fairly, not complex, but let's say you know, it already takes some work and observation, and there's different species with different growth rates. But if you add on top of that uh, a bush, I was wondering how those two recovery periods um, synchronize. And if you have to make choices, which one do you uh, put first? Um, you know, the, the the optimum moment for your pasture or, uh, you know, making sure that your bush is also at the right moment, not to degrade it on the long term?
1: Indeed, great, great questions, because we are putting more complexity back in the landscape. And so that does change your, your business uh, decisions and, and uh, judgments on there. Um, there's no uh, getting away from uh, that and uh, and so the uh, the rest periods have to be uh, more adapted to the thing that is slow growing so that doesn't mean that every time uh, your recovery time has to be um, uh, based on the recovery of the uh, the woody plants you've you've put in, but uh, by and large, that's you're going to have to have an eye uh, for that because, of course, if you you only need to deplete the woody plants a few times in succession and you will start getting plant uh, deaths. And so that's um, uh, something uh, not desirable at all because you've spent uh, usually considerably more on their establishment than you have on the uh, on the ground layer. So, uh, uh, yes, it is a a compromise and that's why having uh, more subdivisions uh, across your uh, whole uh, property allows you then to have a more variable uh, resting and recovery regime than just if we only had pasture paddocks. Alone, and the way we would utilize that, so that then brings starts to bring up different things in the uh, in the grasslands as well, because by having longer uh, rest periods, you start to get variability in seeing other plants come up in your uh, pasturage, and that, so therefore the animals are starting to get an even more diverse and varied and nutrient uh, uh, diversity in their diets than they would have before. So, uh, that is a, um, a, the real key to it is partly grazing management here, not only to your observations at the time, but having enough subdivisions across your landscape so that you can implement that without um, uh, taking too much of an economic cost on any particular area as you wait for it to recover.
0: But you would say that um, having these slightly longer recovery periods uh, aligned with the needs of the the shrubs, for example, the the way that's impacted uh, the evolution of your pasture in terms of quality and quantity is positive. Like it's, you're not seeing like a big trade-off because of a lack of impact, for example, or because the animals rotate less. Like um, you think that it's beneficial. Indeed,
1: yes, because
0: uh, uh, by having many uh, subdivisions, we
1: ensure that that any particular area doesn't get a, um, uh, a similarly replicated set of re- recovery. So it's not all the time uh, the the shrubs waiting for their their most optimum recovery time. They don't get that. Just the same way as in a grassland with in our particular cases, maybe maybe 100 different species, they're not all optimised by whatever grazing uh, decisions we're made as well. We just have to take more care about depleting the resources of a shrub or a, a tree that you're, uh, you're utilising in terms of time. And you do that in two ways, of course, is um, uh, the time between grazing events, but also the severity of the grazing events. There will be times where the animals may be going through the landscape uh, and not impacting the shrubs much at all. So that might be a different class of of, uh, animals you use um, uh, or a different species uh, that you use at that that time that you can then make use of uh, flush of growth from the grassland area without impacting the, the shrubs too much at that point. So there are a few different ways of, of coming at it, uh, but all the time what we're seeking to do is is try to ensure that we don't fall into, as best as possible, a rotational grazing system that is set by habits of ourselves. We want to try across our landscapes to shake it up a bit and be uh, uh, not predictable because if we fall into predictable uh, habits which we are all creatures of habit so that we're, where we will tend to go towards but that will restrict the the amount of diversity that we'll see in our areas so um, uh, this is part of a, a whole farm basis that it's not just the the, the plants and it's not just the the animals, it's, of course, the whole picture of how we're uh, interlacing that that together. Did
0: you include any other types of shrubs then? I mean, you made it clear that the initial and the bulk of the shrubs that you've planted uh, are salt uh, bush, but have you then tested different shrubs as well? Yes, we've, uh, we've planted in excess of
1: uh, 60 different species over time uh, in a, a variety of uh, different uh, ways, some direct seeding of plants, um, uh, some some uh, small uh, scale, so uh, approximately 10 centimetre high, four centimetre root ball uh, seedlings, uh, and then to the occasional uh, advanced uh, uh, shrub that might be um, 30 centimetres high and with a 10 centimetre uh, root ball. Um, the Aim there has been to uh, provide the biggest diversity of plant species that therefore bring back more function. A a saying that I use, uh, and this relates to the animals digesting things, is every plant brings different nutrients at different times in different concentrations to the soil surface. And then animals are another way of then cycling that uh, via the inner interactions of, uh, of the biome that they have within them. Uh, so therefore, we're bringing a greater range of, of nutrients from our soil profile. So the, a, a way of, uh, of meeting on the business uh, side of things is I want to utilise to the greatest depth the amount of soil that I have. I pay for it in a, a scale that's lateral, but I want to use it to the biggest depth. And so therefore, a bigger mix of plants gives me lots of different roots and compounds and, and so forth, coming back up to the soil surface that just could not happen otherwise.
0: And that means that you've integrated this diversity within like the same line, for example. So if you have a, um, a three, you were saying three row like plantation of, of shrubs, no? Um, in your adi cropping um, then you would have a mix of all kinds of different shrubs there uh, yes we haven't done too much of that in most of the production paddocks generally
1: we have kept the very diverse plantings for uh, corridors of uh, connection in uh, from regeneration areas because the landscape was so broken up the the uh, areas that still had uh, remaining vegetation of a natural form uh Uh, were separated from one another. So generally speaking, our our main uh, diversity of species has been to establish in in corridors that connect those. And then from time to time, those areas we would graze. So uh, a good example of how that would practically be is that if we had a very um, extreme weather event, some very cold times, that might be a time that we would utilise a very diverse planting that's uh, only a biodiversity corridor for uh, 99% of the the year, just for a short duration, it is uh, impacted by animals uh, in order that we can have the animals survive uh, really severe weather. Uh, And so it's a a wonderful example of the investment there um, probably shouldn't be um, looked at on a per hectare basis because... That is actually a survival mechanism for our flocks and herds for the whole year round, even though it's only a small area, uh, a more intense amount of uh, investment originally in its uh, regeneration, but uh, it affects the whole of business considerations.
0: Continuing on this, uh, this, uh, focusing on the shrub and and the role it takes in your farm, when are they consumed typically then? You were saying that they're consumed... At moments uh, in the spring, with uh, lush growth, to get some like fiber and and rough uh, matter, and then you also said in the summer as well uh, when it's dry. Uh, that's the two main moments where the animals will be actually taking nutrition out of them. Uh,
1: yes, it's the two times that that it has the uh, if you like the the maximum consumption uh, when presented with them. Uh, And with uh, this is with experienced animals. If we uh, bring in animals that have had uh, no access to those shrubs previously, uh, they will take some time before they incorporate it heavily into their their diet. Uh, But um, for experienced animals, uh, then they're accessing it uh, all the the year round, as much as we possibly can. And uh, that's one other part of the whole of farm basis we just don't want a few patches of shrubs where the animals only encounter them uh, infrequently over the the year's basis. As best we can, we try and have have it that they're encountering shrubs most of the time, and then that way their internal uh, dietary biome. Uh, Keeps enough of the microorganisms going at a strong level, so they get the maximum benefit from the shrubs they're they're eating, but also it's a, a lesser time for them to uh, get reintroduced and get benefit from eating it. So we find they're they're um, using it all the time. Probably a pretty simple rule with um, dietary mixing of uh, of animals is that usually they will be um, uh, using anything from six to ten species of plants as the main part of their diet. After that, there seems to be no limit to the amount of diversity that animals will incorporate into their diet above the uh, the main about 85% that they use in their diet.
0: Mm. And I focused a lot on the, the kind of uh, diet aspect and the grazing aspect but actually uh, you were mentioning many other benefits in terms of uh, microclimate. I'm curious to see, you know, you mentioned that you were able to double your stocking rate, if I'm correct. Is it mainly because of, you know, an added availability of fodder or is it actually through an increase of uh, the resilience of the pasture because of this windbreak effect, for example, or other benefits uh, that the shrubs and trees provide? Yes, you're, uh, you're uh, correct there. And uh, the dietary mixing
1: that the animals are able to do uh, with the, uh, the grass layer and then mixing it with a proportion of, of shrub layer, uh, plus the interactions on the edge of everything we, we plant as additional layers. The edge effect has been something very much in our, our minds. Trying to maximise edge effect across the landscape means that the science is pretty clear on that that you maximise not only the number but also the mass of the organisms that tend to use both types of stuff. So uh, birds are a great example of, of that. If you place shrubs and trees across the landscape, woodland birds will utilise partly the grassland as well as the woods that they go and shelter in. So they're not only just taking resources from there, they're bringing resources back as well. Um, uh, You know, those sort of organisms are starting to move base elements like phosphorus and so forth around our landscape. So, yeah, it's a multiple layered benefit when we start putting... Uh, these things in as a proportion, but that's the maybe the key point, not just totally this, totally that, not just one species, but keeping on thinking of doing a range of things and making sure you uh, you keep your cake as well as adding more layers of uh, icing and cream onto it as much as possible
0: you know I'm wondering in in comparison to neighboring farms that maybe haven't done this work of including. Uh, this shrub layer and thinking really about wind protection. Would you say that the the pasture stays, for example, greener, longer or starts to green earlier because it's not being dried out by the winds? Because, you know, that is the reasoning. But I'm really curious to see what you've actually observed uh, on your farm.
1: Very definitely. And uh, in our dry and hot summers that we have uh, here, um, very, very apparent that the uh, length of time that, the grass stays greener uh, on those uh, paddocks is quite considerable it does vary a lot between uh, years and um, the uh, uh, interestingly for us the grass right in amongst the shrubs stays greenest longest uh, that was unexpected for us we we had for for so long thought about plants in competition rather than thinking about the complementarity that uh, that happens so uh, uh, that's the, if you like, a, an exciting part of what we've seen uh, in our landscape. That the more we add uh, uh, plants in into there, and uh, has only added to the complementarity rather than establishing more
0: competition. One of the questions that comes to mind is then, how do you manage all of this at scale? We've touched upon it a bit before, but I want to go into some uh, detail now. And maybe starting logically with uh, how you achieved planting so many trees or managing the regrowth of so many trees. So taking things from the beginning, how did it all start and how did that evolve through time?
1: Yes, yeah, so um, uh, our ability to uh, reinstate uh, the woody vegetation actually rests on something related to the grasses, actually, which is grazing management and uh, the, the partitions across the, uh, the landscape. So um, uh, we have uh, approximately 115 paddocks uh, across our whole property now, and we had uh, for a period of time up to 160. And so I mentioned that from the, uh, from the possibility that if we're establishing in any one of those uh, areas, um, some woody vegetation, then because they're only a small percentage of our property, we could take them out for the length of period, time needed for the shrub or trees to get properly established before uh, a livestock reintroduction without affecting our, our business in a, uh, a large fashion. So that is really a, a key point um, for anybody doing these sort of transitions. You, uh, you tend not to be able to do it economically in large uh, percentage proportions of your place at any one time you have to start thinking about uh, uh, beginning doing a little bit at a time and then you won't even notice the, um, uh, the small amount of, amounts of areas that you have set aside while they're growing. That does, of course, depend on how long you have to uh, wait until you can utilise it with, uh, with livestock. But, of course, if we are using alleyway uh, uh, situations, if you're cropping in those areas, well... Then effectively you've, you've lost very very little of the economic potential in those uh, those years. But we're after a true mix here, something that that um, uh, that isn't just uh, cropping alone in, into uh, intercropped into uh, tree and shrub areas, because inevitably if you do not have livestock in your system, then you are going to be having to uh, rely on outside inputs to keep that amount of simplicity. Uh, animals, of course, eat a lot of things that that, um, from a cropping perspective and that sort of thing would usually be uh, classed as weeds and so forth. So uh, this is a, a way of uh, getting into it. So starting with with smaller patches and enough of a, an opportunity so that you don't miss that on an economic sense is the first point. And then from, from there, um, uh, a lot of our, our reintroductions and regenerations were about reinstating um, the, um, uh, the biodiversity aspects on our property. So that's, if you like, one theme which is a fair bit different than what we were doing inside the production paddocks. So uh, two quite uh, uh, substantially different aims, as it, as it were. So trees into our production paddocks was something that we only started to do um, a good 15 years after we had already started to put shrubs across our our landscape because the economics weren't uh, there. It was too long a wait to um, uh, take them out for trees initially until we had raised our stocking rate by putting shrubs in and then we had the opportunity to start to do more tree uh, reintroductions.
0: So, if I understood properly, there's a good amount of natural regeneration. Let's say on the areas that were already planted with trees, the corridors that you maintained. Effectively, there's a lot of trees that came back naturally, and a lot of that diversity wasn't necessarily planted, right?
1: Yes, that's right. In uh, in areas, yes. So, uh, um, and we needed to enhance that and add to it. So, uh, uh, the biggest additions we did there were on the diverse. Shrub side of things, so that range of species that we put back there were locally uh, endemic ones uh, to this uh, area. So um, uh, I might just say we take a view here that we, uh, if we have a, uh, an option of planting a local uh, native uh, versus an uh, an outside species, we will pick the um, uh, the local native. Um, only from the point of view that that we know that the package of of organisms that operate with that plant species, if it's locally adapted and here will be a larger package than if we bring uh, another plant that might equally thrive here but is not uh, native to this area Um, uh, uh, will actually have in the whole soil and airflow and, and above ground. But as, as far as we're concerned, every bit of diversity we can bring in, we're, we are always keen to, uh, to plant more uh, woody plants that will survive in our area that aren't native, uh, as long as they, um, uh, they're not a, a species that is an increaser and, and uh, would become an environmental weed. Apart from that, it just adds even more diversity than could be there before.
0: In the case where you okay, you added some trees for the diversity, and then you planted the shrubs in the production zones. This you mainly did through seedlings. Yes,
1: uh, uh, predominantly. Yes, in particular with the shrubs, because when we were looking at the um, the, uh, the shelter belt part of it, um, having uh, breaks in the shelter belts um, would be a big problem because to replant in those those areas would probably be uh, uneconomic because you'd be having to wait for a second time uh, for them to regrow and and, uh, and and go in there. And so that's another reason why in our particular layouts, we would have a triple row of shrubs together and then the open area and then the next triple row. So we're trying to maximise the edge effect there. If we went more than than three rows, we would have uh, too dense a stand of shrubbery in, in each uh, row of shrub row, that that is. And so then you would start to suppress the overall grass growth in there. And, um, uh, and so that is a, a reasonable mix of maximising edge effect for the amount of investment, but still having an effective hedge row, as it, as it were. That will vary, of course, depending upon what species uh, anybody is, is contemplating. And, uh, uh, and what will grow in, uh, in their particular area. Uh, there's no exact answer on that, but you just don't want a, a very solid uh, hedgerow there, necessarily, that is, um, uh, does not have uh, a grass layer, at least to some extent within it, because we want the organisms to keep on moving in there.
0: But you know, on the scale you're at, that's tens of thousands of plants Uh, if not, you know, hundred thousands, And I'm wondering, how did you achieve uh, planting at such scale? Yeah, so mostly they were
1: put in with uh, vegetable transplanters that would grasp each individual seedling and place into uh, disturbed um, uh, lines. So uh, because of the high evaporation rates in this part of the world, uh, we need to Uh, at least six months ahead of time, start um, uh, some deep uh, uh, tillage work down to uh, uh, as much as a little bit more than a a one metre with uh, deep ripping on on those and then to keep those um, uh, uh, tilled up and uh, 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 plant free. So it's almost a a traditional tillage option but with maximum moisture uh, retention. Um, uh, The plants that we establish need to get their roots down into the deep subsoil in order to survive through our our very uh, harsh summers, especially their first and second summer. So uh, quite conventional along those lines as far as uh, very, very deep uh, tillage and so a very fine um, uh, soil surface that the vegetable transplanters would would put in and so we would be uh, commonly um, uh, doing with uh, a two person behind the tractor uh, setup uh, and uh, and we would be easily doing anything um uh, five to ten thousand uh, plants per day but um that's that's not even very fast a horticulturalist would would be doing that with uh with um uh with vegetable plants quite easily that's the way you sort of imagine that in your in your mind sounds sounds a lot but it's uh very nice and very meditative work too as you keep on seeing all those uh, plants behind you
0: great and uh, maybe the step just before it is you know was it difficult to source the genetics that you were looking for uh and you know having them at the scale you wanted is is there already like a good network of nurseries with uh, local plants in your area uh, yes, there,
1: there uh, was. There's uh, probably less so nowadays uh, in Australia than there there was 20 and 30 years ago. There was a very strong movement towards revegetation uh, then that uh, while there is more uh, quantity of revegetation now, it's probably not quite so much f- focused on the, uh, the natural side, so it's not as diverse as it used to be. Um, very much, we um, uh, with the saltbush, we we could have had u- utilized an option of going for uh, uh, cl- uh, clonal plants or uh, uh, varietals, but we very deliberately wanted to not do that and have a bigger uh, variety within the uh, whatever species we were putting there um, for diversity's sake. Because one thing that we we found out only much later on through the Enrich Pro program that the um, chemical analysis in particular of shrubs can really really vary even from uh, uh, within a species and uh, and even uh, what uh, uh, chemical properties that um, particular type of shrub exhibit throughout the year. So having once again a, a broad base was what we were uh, trying to, uh, to do.
0: And did you experiment at Other time, other moments in time with um, direct seeding, for example, or is that something you haven't touched upon?
1: Yes, we did um, uh, uh, quite a bit of uh, of direct um, seeding, and uh, probably um, uh, established something in the order of one hundred and fifty thousand trees and shrubs uh, that way. Uh, In this part of Australia, it's not as uh, suited as some other parts of Australia for that to uh, to be successful and that's related uh, again to our high evaporation rates in the summer times that, we, uh, that follow. So for seedlings that don't have a deep uh, root zone that's been fractured for them and just been established on the top of the surface, they have uh, some challenges there to, to get down. If you get uh, fortunate uh, with the, uh, the seasonal effects, that can still be very effective and we've done it. In, in areas of Australia that are more sand-based soils rather than our loams or clays in our part of the world, then high degrees of, um, uh, of establishment are regularly are found and it's a very, very effective way of uh, establishing uh, things. And um, uh, it uh, does depend also on what effect you're, you're wanting though too because of the variability that if you want to... Uh, a very very effective set, sets of windbreaks for instance direct seeding may not be the answer in those circumstances unless one is doing a very wide width in the um, in the woody r- rows in which case you should be able to make up for any lack of germination along any particular row but uh, uh, if uh, if they're narrower rows and you get gaps in it then those gaps actually form wind tunnels across the landscape and you
0: lose the benefit so once you've planted the trees um do you do any management of them
1: uh essentially um uh, not in our case um in particular with the the shrubs there's an interesting question there that um we uh, some shrub layouts in australia uh utilizing tagasasti uh as a as an example there they actually do um uh, machine pruning of the of the plants. We've adopted the attitude that we wanted very much to avoid that and run our grazing regime so the animals did whatever pruning on the fodder parts of um, uh, of the landscape on um, uh, on the areas that we, where we'd establish trees for more biodiversity purposes and so forth. Principally, we'd like the livestock to go through those areas, impacting the grassland area. Um, but uh, as being as light as possible, impact on uh, uh, on the woody vegetation at any one one stage. Uh, so um, yes, the uh, uh, the way you uh, 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 approach that we um, is from our viewpoint, we want we want to do the the minimum of outside input because we're trying to uh, eliminate as much as possible fossil fuel use. Uh, And uh, and I'm getting lazier as I get older too, so I don't like the work.
0: (laughs) But so typically, when will you include back animals in a certain area after you've planted? Like, what does it look like on a timescale? Yeah. So with
1: um, in regard to uh, saltbush, which uh, is the the main production plant that we've used for that that purpose, uh, that has been anything six to twelve, sorry, six to eighteen months uh, time uh, for first. Uh, grazing, uh, the maximum amount of time when we've had very difficult seasons has been three years. But when we look at that economically, that that uh, takes a very, very long time uh, to recoup that uh, amount of grazing uh, time. So uh, because we can still go and uh, uh, crop using no kill uh, in those uh, uh, in those places, in the intervening time, we're not losing production. From that point of view, we we are losing the uh, the ability to utilise the other grass biomass, uh, other than what we uh, uh, we harvest as a crop. So, um, uh, but it lessens the effect of the uh, of the economic uh, uh, input uh, in terms of uh, of trees and so forth in our part of the world. That can be quite lengthy. That can be uh, a five to ten years. Uh, potentially, before we would let them back into uh, an area, so uh, that's one of the the reasons again why small proportions going back into that, especially in our early years, were an important business uh,
0: uh, uh, decision for us. Just in terms of the shrubs, because it's clearly you know the main biomass on the farm, uh, is there any pruning required? Let's say you know once they're established, animals are coming and grazing a, p- a bit on them but naturally they'll keep the shape and the height that you're uh, wanting to maintain on the farm. There's no need for any exterior like pruning or intervention. Yes,
1: we we have um, the
0: the species that we have used uh, fit that.
1: But if we had um, too much of a proportion of, the shrubs within a paddock, then uh, we would have a, a situation where the animals would have to make a compromise. We would have to, uh, sorry, or put it this way, that we would be compromising their nutritional status because we would have to be keeping them there longer than optimum for them to get a pruning result on the shrubs. Uh, and so that's where your design criteria really become important that if you have too high a proportion of of shrubs in the long run you might actually be uh, uh, be negating some of the benefits by uh, forcing the animals to reside there longer to get the pruning effect that you need so uh, very much i i, I don't uh, believe that Shrub systems that require mechanical pruning in terms of, of machinery. If we're talking um, at a scale where humans are doing it, and that is part of a, a cultural thing, then that's uh, uh, perfectly great. Uh, but uh, uh, with machines, that's that's uh, outside energy and outside input, and a, a profit uh, impost a cost on the on the business as well that uh, you've just put. In there, so it's a structural uh, uh, problem for the uh, the whole farm considerations.
0: Um, listen, you know, I think you've mentioned it a good few times and alluded to it to this business and kind of strategy approach to including perennials. But maybe we could wrap it up, uh, you know, to to conclude this um, this episode. Yeah, to understand really how that fits into the farm strategy so there's a few principles that i've heard through the conversation really one on the timing of you know first starting with shrubs that are going to have a a quicker return in a sense and yeah maybe you could elaborate a bit on on how those the shrubs fitted into your business strategy and also maybe some of the conditions uh for it to be successful
1: yes great question and i think it it uh, can be seen as a stepped approach uh uh, and uh, layers in the landscape. We needed to get our, our grazing regime at the grass level uh, sorted out first of all and with enough uh, different possibilities and in our case enough subdivisions and paddocks across the area so we could start to exercise some business decisions of reintroducing shrubs or trees. With, without that base level on the grazing uh, uh, considerations, then we uh, we w- really wouldn't have been able to afford the proportions or time out of those proportions for uh, exercising shrubs or, or trees, and also then we wouldn't have been able to take full use uh, advantage of the tree and shrub plantings and gain the benefit. So uh, grazing management across landscapes is uh, actually a really quite a an important foundational part and provides the avenues to go and uh, and implement these other things, but also then the benefit, the business benefit, but also the natural benefit uh, as well. The more we grow the, the total look of diversity across our, our properties, um, however much that can be, because it can't uh, there's uh, be to the maximum of... Uh, of any area, because it, we are still going to uh, have to be simplifying our system somewhat to get our human needs across it. But the trick is to try and simplify it only as much as is possible and maximize everything else.
0: I'm just wondering, in terms of of cash flow, and obviously the main challenge for from the business perspective is that you're having to put quite expensive costs upfront for establishing the trees. And then only seeing that return uh, a few years after you mentioned the stepped approach, which I totally understood, but uh, yeah. How, how do you manage that kind of gap between costs and benefits?
1: Yes. Great question. Um, especially when, uh, uh in the case of, uh, long lived trees and so forth, uh, any realistic benefit will be, uh, only gained long after I am gone. So, um, that I believe comes back to the to the proportion and the amounts you're able to do as you go along and uh, uh, if uh, being completely hypothetical uh, uh, if I only did 1% per year of of this property well in the time that I've uh, already occupied here well that would be my job 35% done Uh, and that would be affordable but to uh, contemplate doing 35 percent even if uh, one had unlimited funds uh, that that also is is just is not realistic we we need to have that that pathway and uh, and for it to be practical
0: well bruce listen um, this was an amazing interview and i really enjoyed the way you have of looking at things uh, in a very holistic and coherent manner and I'm wondering, maybe you do have some resources to suggest to our listeners uh, that have inspired you and helped you see things in this way, and that they can use to take things forward. Indeed, I might suggest some um, uh, uh,
1: some great helpful things. Uh, one uh, thing is a, a wonderful method called farmer-managed natural regeneration, uh, invented by an Australian by the name of Tony Renaud, and uh, his work in. Uh, Africa has been absolutely monumental and uh, literally uh, hundreds of thousands of hectares, if not millions of hectares, have been rehabilitated and uh, uh, that uh, can be found online and a wonderful uh, uh, silver cultural uh, answer to uh, desertification across the, the globe. Uh, another uh, wonderful resource for people is the work uh, done by... Professor Fred Provenza from the United States, who has written a wonderful book called Nourishment. And uh, it is an incredible uh, book on the interactions of plants, animals, and people across the the landscape. And uh, I would strongly recommend that. And the last uh, set of resources are uh, the enrich. Program from Australia, which is was based upon a lot of Australian native shrubs that uh, can be used as forage, uh, with some particular aspect there. And then uh, I would mention uh, from my own work in combination with others uh, with animal behaviour change, uh, self herding. So uh, one can go to selfherding.com dot com and get some free resources uh, there, uh, where. Uh, we're changing the distribution of animals across the the landscape by choice rather than by force. And uh, that's an exciting new uh, uh, avenue for everybody.
0: That's amazing. Thank you so much. We were actually lucky enough to have Fred Provenza on the podcast a few episodes back. So uh, our listeners can also go and and listen to that um, episode, which will also echo the way we've been thinking about the interaction between animals and uh, perennial plants um, in this conversation. Bruce, uh, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Etienne, and uh, thanks for the opportunity.